Welcome back to History List, and our series, New Connections, Episode 7. Yersinia pestis. As of 2022, the virus known universally as plague has had its origins revealed. The strain that wiped out much of Asia and Europe between 1346 and 1353 likely arose in Kazakhstan. But Kazakhstan has never been a major population center. How did this rather rural area end up spreading a disease that wiped out millions? That's where we'll begin this episode, Surges and Recessions. A century earlier, Genghis Khan had ridden through Central Asia, trying to re-establish the neglected Silk Road trade routes. Trade was vital to his empire. If goods passed through his lands, it meant he could tax it. So, the 1200s saw a revitalization of the great trade routes between China and the Mediterranean. With these networks back up and running at full tilt, it provided an easy corridor for the spread of diseases, and thus we see the plague's paths to both east and west out of rural Kazakhstan. The human population in the areas affected by the Black Death, so-called because it covered the body in large black welts, underwent an enormous constriction, a major recession. Between 75 and 200 million people died across Europe, Asia, and North Africa. All thanks to Genghis Khan having reopened trade routes across the continents in the 1200s. Of the regions devastated by the plague, North Africa was perhaps the least hard hit. In 1348, however, it came to the Egyptian Mamluk Sultanate with its capital in Cairo. The same sultanate which had repelled Genghis Khan and stopped him from taking over North Africa when he tried to in 1260. The Nile River was full of dead bodies. Records state that a third of the population perished from the Black Death. At the time, the Mamluks were the intellectual and cultural masters of the Mediterranean. But even after surviving the Mongols and the plague, the Mamluks had another concern, their western border, with the Sahara and North African coast, an area known as the Maghreb. The Mamluks controlled just the area around Egypt and part of the Middle East. North Africa and the Sahara belonged to the Berbers. From Morocco to Libya, the Berbers controlled North Africa. There were tribal confederations throughout the Maghreb in the Middle Ages. By the late 1300s, there were a few major kingdoms that had emerged. Algeria was largely controlled by the Zionids, Tunisia by the Hafsids, and Morocco by the Marinids. Prior to this, in the 1200s, Morocco had been run by the Almohads, who had also controlled the neighboring territory to the north. Al-Andalus in Islamic Spain. For Europeans, the Muslims of Spain were simply Moors, regardless of their actual ethnicity or background. European Muslims, North African Berbers, to the Christians of Europe it was all the same. 
Around the time the Almohad Berbers were taking over Spanish Al-Andalus, a Spanish poem was being written about the great warrior who had fought the Moors some 200 years earlier, Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, more commonly known as El Cid. Based on a real story, the poem tells of how El Cid fought the Moors for the Christian kingdom of Castile. The poem has become the national epic of Spain, just as the Song of Roland, composed around 1100, is the national epic of France, or how the Arthurian tales became foundational to England. All of these works deal with the same subject, knights and chivalry. Throughout the Middle Ages in Europe, chivalrous knights became an ideal and inspiration for behavior and conduct among the literate nobility. And much like that other great hero of Spanish literature, Don Quixote, the intoxicating role of this chivalric literature on real-life Spanish man had a profound series of consequences. Born in the Basque region of Spain, Inigo Lopez hailed from a noble family. Spain was, as ever, at war. As a boy, he served as a page to treasure of the Kingdom of Castile. But he wanted to be like El Cid, the local hero of legend, and decided a military career was the way to go. By 18, he was in the army, but due to a cannonball destroying part of his leg, Inigo was, by around the age of 30, out of the service, back home in Loyola, recuperating. There, he converted his life to Christianity, and turned away, at least in part, from the military. Mind you, Ignatius of Loyola was still fairly militant in outlook. The order he founded were even called God's Soldiers, the Jesuits. Ignatius of Loyola established the Jesuits in 1534, and the Vatican approved of them as an official order of the Catholic Church by 1540. Immediately, they began their missionary work, specifically targeting areas the missionaries hadn't yet traveled to. As the Spanish Empire grew in the 1500s, the Jesuits found South America a territory ripe for conversion. By the 1570s, nearly 40 years after Pizarro's initial conquest of the Inca Empire, the territory of Peru was being permanently settled and colonized by the Spanish. All sorts of Catholic missionaries went to Peru to get the formerly Inca to accept Jesus, Jesuits, Dominicans, and so forth. But it was the Jesuits who made an important discovery while working there, namely the properties of a local plant called Conchona. Old world diseases, like smallpox, had ravaged the indigenous populations of the New World with the arrival of the Europeans. But there were plants in the Americas which could actually help with these old world diseases and ailments. One of the terrible diseases was malaria, which by the early 1600s the Jesuits seemed to have found a cure for in Peru, the Conchona plant. By 1632, they had brought its seemingly remarkable bark back to Europe to be studied. For the next 200 years, Europeans tried to synthesize the bark of the tree from South America into a usable medicine. In the 1730s, the best form of conchona bark had been established, and in 1820, in France, 
the medicinal substance from the bark, quinine, had been isolated. For the next 130 years, quinine helped the Europeans survive malaria just in time to coincide with increased tropical colonization. But where did malaria come from? The name points to what they thought at the time, mal meaning bad and aria for air, bad air. And now that you mention it, foul-smelling places like swamps did seem like areas where malaria outbreaks occurred with monotonous regularity. Theories about the transmission of malaria didn't really take off, however, until after the development of germ theory in the mid-1800s. By the 1890s, a British doctor working in India by the name of Ronald Ross put the pieces of a few theories together and established the real culprit, mosquitoes. For his proof, he won one of the first Nobel Prizes in medicine in 1902. So, entering the 20th century, we knew mosquitoes were behind the spread of often fatal malaria. Our next step on the journey takes us to another scientist who won the Nobel Prize in medicine, this time in 1948, for work he'd done in creating a way to kill mosquitoes. Paul Hermann Mueller had, in 1939, synthesized and discovered a poison which killed mosquitoes with a remarkable efficacy. An organochloride called dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane, or DDT for short. DDT became a sensation. Finally, an insecticide for that age-old and potentially lethal pest, the noxious mosquito. The mosquito population began to drop dramatically. But, as we soon learn, the mosquito killer came with some unanticipated side effects. Let's pause and remember how we got here. The plague spread due to trade routes re-established by the Mongols, who had tried unsuccessfully to attack the Egyptian Mamluks, a powerful caliphate that withstood the plague but couldn't expand west due to the Berber kingdoms, which had at one point conquered much of Spain under the Almohads, where the Christian Europeans regarded them as Moors, the same group fought in real life and in poetry by Spanish hero El Cid. Poetry, which inspired a young Spanish boy named Ignatius of Loyola to try and become a chivalrous knight, but who got wounded in battle, leading to his conversion and founding of the Jesuit order, which promptly set up missions in Peru, where they discovered the fever-reducing properties of the Conchona plant, bringing it back to Europe in the early 1600s, where over 200 years, the medicinal properties were eventually synthesized, creating quinine to treat malaria, which by the 1890s had been discovered to be transmitted by mosquitoes, thereby putting a new emphasis on eradicating mosquitoes, which is what Paul Mueller did when he created the insecticide DDT. But all was not as it seemed with DDT. First off, mosquitoes didn't die right away. They would fly off and die later. And this was very bad news for the birds that ate the DDT-infected mosquitoes. Sometimes it killed the bird outright, but more horrifically, the chemical led to a totally unintended consequence. It made the bird's eggshells too thin, causing them to crack before the chicks inside could hatch killing the baby birds inside. Well, all of this was slowly found out and synthesized by a great American scientist, Rachel Carson. 
1962, she published her classic work, and one of the most important texts of the 20th century, Silent Spring. So named because of the consequences of DDT on the eggshells of songbirds, like robins. With her publication, a far better understanding of ecology and the food web emerged. DDT was soon banned in the U.S., mostly by the early 1970s, and testing had to be done on new substances before they entered common use. It was a sobering moment for humanity. We developed what we thought was a great gift, but learned its consequences were too great to bear. Most importantly, however, in the long term, was what Silent Spring did for the world's consciousness. It is the foundational text of the environmental movement. Ever since, people around the globe have chosen to prioritize and question the limits of human influence on our environment and our planet. The environmental movement had vast consequences, from outlawing the hunting of whales to addressing the hole in the ozone layer, and from eliminating lead and gasoline to tackling climate change. Thanks to Carson, environmentalism is taught in schools around the world, as children learn about the food chain and the need for protecting endangered species and why we should strive to keep plastics out of our oceans. Humans are a part of the environment, not something separate. That fundamental insight came to us from a chain of events that began with the plague of the Black Death and ended with our trying to eliminate mosquitoes hosting malaria. Diseases are a constant reminder of how we are connected to life around us, especially when they jump from other species to humans. When they strike, they can devastate our populations. And when we find cures, our populations can increase significantly. In the last pages of her groundbreaking work, Rachel Carson says the following. There runs a constant theme, the awareness that we are dealing with life, with living populations and their pressures and counterpressures, their surges and recessions. <laughs>